0: In my opinion, Mount Joy, as it stands, shouldn't stand. It should be torn to pieces, or, alternatively, it should be used as uh, a monument. You know, a, a museum, as it is Kilmainham, has a history attached to it. Uh, uh, and that's about the only good Mount Joy would, would actually do and that's the voice of an
1: ex-convict who for the past 12 years has been a frequent occupant of the cells of Mountjoy Prison. He's just 28 years of age and the father of three children, but already he's seen the inside of Mountjoy on eight separate occasions. He's been remanded in custody or convicted on charges, ranging from assault right through to armed robbery. And for the next 40 minutes, he describes life in Ireland's oldest and largest prison institution. However, as is so often the case, his career in crime dates back to his mid-teens. At that stage, he was caught in possession of a stolen motorbike, but was sentenced on a charge of driving without insurance. It was to lead to his first contact with prison, and he was committed to St. Patrick's, which is part and parcel of the Mountjoy complex. He picks up his own story from the very beginning. I
0: was 16 years of age. That was 12 years ago, around 12 years ago. I was sentenced by Justice Kennedy to a a month's imprisonment. Uh, At that time, there was ten of us in the house, ten sisters and brothers, my mother and father. That was twelve. We lived in a two-room flat in Mount Pleasant buildings. And I remember getting taken in the van from the children's court, right up into the big, massive, big gates and into this big, massive institution. You know, and I was looking around, You know, prison, prison, Jesus Christ, you know. I thought it was a little hard shower on the outside or something, but I could really feel my whole soul that we have when I were ever there, us under. I felt like bursting out, crying, looking around, hoping to see a face that I knew, whatever. Anyway, I was brought down to reception. I was stripped. uh, my civvy clothes, as they known as, was taken from me. And I was given a short, big long khaki short, something like what the army would wear, but it was nearly down past my knees. I was marched then from the reception, in that short, up onto one of the wings, I think it was B wing, and I was placed there in a cell. I got a mug of tea and uh, bread and jam, and I was in there for the night. I could look out the window and see most of the lads taking a recreation and that was walking around the yard. I recognised a few faces which gave me a lift uh, I never shut my eyes all that night. Every sound, every word I passing up and down the prison, you know, woke me up, woke me up. I was terrified witches and ghosts or whatever you might call it, right? Uh, I remember then the following morning I was taken from my cell when all the lads was lined up to go to their workshops and various other places and I was marched in front of them. I was never more embarrassed than my life for this big shirt in me. It was like a... A big maxi dress, <laughs> you know. Uh, I was brought down to reception, and then I was given a uniform, which consisted of memory serves me correct, this woolly type, blue woolly type material. Scratch the legs off, you like and bone or something like that. And a big pair of leather hobnail shoes. Uh, they were made in the prison at that time. The large, large shoes, you know, big round toes, big thick soles, all leather, all handmade. I was given a job then, I was put on the B I think it was B two. It was in B two and B three, scrubbing flowers and you know, you'd scrub them in the morning, you'd go from the one landing to the other, uh, then you go the other side from one to the other. And you back over to the side you've already done and back back you'd scrub the the four landings in the morning. You'd come out then in the afternoon and you'd do exactly the same thing on the landings and then you'd do, you do know, your recreation in the night time but it was a long old month, and I got out just in time for my sister's wedding. At that time, uh, the screws used to cut your hair. Well, lucky enough, I got on with the the screw that was on the landing. He uh, was an all right sort of a fella, and he prevented the, the barber from cutting me hair because I explained to him that I had a wedding in three weeks' time that when I got out, so I got out, and... I was delighted. That was the first time I was ever in prison. Understandably, however,
1: the experiences of that sixteen-year-old were highly impressionable, and today, twelve years later, the memories of his spell in St Patrick's still linger on.
0: Uh, one memory that sticks in my mind, and you could you could understand it coming from outside. I was a child then, and the chap that was in the cell next door I was a child. We got a haunted comic. You know, these haunted comics nobody read books or anything their comic was about the degree you could go to, you know. There was books I'm not saying that magazines and comics was what you read anyway. But we got this haunted comic and the chap next door got a he was a redheaded chap, I can't think of his name. Uh, and he cracked up that night. Oh, I know a lot of people's not gonna know what cracked up. What age was see, uh, he? Was he out. would have been sixteen, seventeen, you know. Uh Got this comic and he cracked up anyway when he when he read it and he he'd been reading about ghosts and Frankenstein, Dracula, you know various things like that, and he, then he cracked up, which meant he, he started breaking up his furniture and screaming and roaring. Uh, he imagined there was ghosts in the cell with him and all this sort of thing. He'd been dra- dragged off then. I just heard him being taken out of the cell and dragged off. I well, still to this day I don't know you know what happened to him. You know, but now I know, like, you know, you crack up, you go to a base, or a lock-up cell, or a padded cell, or something like that. But that's, you know, as I say, 12 years ago, and I think of that first time I was ever in prison. That's the real memory. Between that, entering the prison, and the way they parade me around in this short, they're the three memories I have, You know, and really missing my family.
1: Having left St. Patrick's, he returned to his family in Mount Pleasant Buildings. He'd already left school, so his formal education was finished, so he explains how his life developed from there.
0: Well, when I came out after serving the month, I had been working previous to getting the month, and uh, the job that I had you know, before I went into prison was still open for me when I came out. Uh, it was a van helper on a laundry van. Uh, I stayed employed with the same firm until I was 18 years of age and then at 18 years of age, uh, it was more or less compulsory that you had to live because you were going on to man's wages and you were only doing boys' work and I was let go of it. So what happened after that? Uh, well, I was messing around. I got caught back up with some of my old friends. I uh, started doing a bit of housebreaking and various other sort of petty larceny you know eventually got back into trouble and got a, you know out of trouble got chances in the court uh got one or two other jobs worked for a while worked then while uh, i was working i got charged with a very serious offense uh, i was remanded in custody which is what, by the way uh it was armed robbery so it was back to prison, this
1: time to Mountjoy on remand for the charge of armed robbery. He was to spend over nine months in the prison, but was released when the charge was subsequently dropped. However, that was to be just the beginning of his contact with Mountjoy jail, and in later years he was to see it again and again as a convict or as a remand prisoner. He became accustomed to life in the prison, and he describes what it's like.
0: Well, you wake up in the morning, you usually wake around half seven, you hear them taking the force lock, At seven or half seven, they take the force lock off the door. There's sort of a double lock on the door. You hear a screw going around taking the force lock off the door, and that normally wakes you up. Then around eight o'clock, the doors is open, and there's a big type of a charge, <laughs> depending on where your cell is situated on the, the landing, but there's still a charge either way. You run down to with your chamber pot in your hand, this is the thing that you use for urinating, etc., in during the night because you're locked up from 8 in the night to 8 in the morning. Uh, everybody runs down to the end of the landing where there's two toilet pots to service two landings. You know, that'd be a landing on either side. Uh, everybody runs for these two toilet pots, hopefully, to get in first and empty the pot and that before the toilet basins overflow because that's a normal occurrence. mount joy the two toilet pots are constantly overflowing i don't think the sewerage system can cater for the amount of stuff that's thrown down the pots then beside that you have a tap and there's a big large bin something like what you put out for the the bin man and that's just there like there's no drain underneath the tap or anything like that just this large bin you wash out your poo in cold water and pour it into this bucket and that's another reason for the rush up is before the bucket gets overflowing because it has to be carted off and emptied somewhere. Then you get back to your cell and it's another rush down then to the, the two hand basins. When I say two toilets and two hand basins, you think there was only two prisoners to each landing, and there's about 50. But uh, you rush back down to rinse out your few utensils, get a sip of water to wash yourself and you get back to your cell then. You stand at your door, you call down. The particular landing is called down for breakfast you go down for your breakfast, you bring a tray, a bowl, a cup and a teapot on your tray. First thing you get is uh, big churns of tea, uh, sugared, milked, everything. You know, you just put them, fill up your teapot from the churn. Then you go around and you get bread, uh, flour slices. There's, a, there's a really no quarrel about the amount of bread you take. You get a bowl, a bowl of cornflakes and a half pint of milk and marmalade, there's marmalade there, you can take as much of that as you want as well. You go back up to your cell, then you're locked in, Yeah, you eat your breakfast, then you make up your bed, you have to make it up military style, you know, blanket sheet, blanket sheet, blanket sheet, uh, pillow on top and so on, you know, as you roll up. Then when they open you up, about quarter to 10, I think it is then, you go down and you wash your utensils, you empty out, get fresh water to rub yourself down again. Uh, then you must put all your, your utensils out on on the table. It's a locker type of thing. It's both table and locker, you know. Uh, you have your break, or you s- reset your table then military fashion again. You put your po upside down, your basin, wash hand basin upside down, and then you're called out for recreation.
1: So that's the end of your early morning at that stage. That's
0: ten o'clock at that stage, you know. Or past ten, half ten, 30s, you know, it depends on what time they choose to let you out of. From there, the morning routine
1: continues. The next stage is recreation time, and for that purpose, the prisoners are led into a yard containing two sheds.
0: Basically, what you do, if the weather is any way good, is you'll walk around the shed, you know, clockwise fashion, and you'll stay there till 12 o'clock, or if you want to play cards under one of the sheds, you know, a game of dawn or something like that. Can you play football or anything like no, that? Too? No, no, in, in, th- in this particular yard there's, there'd be literally nowhere where you could play football or no, no other games. The only thing you can do is walk around or, as I said, sit down and play cards.
1: So it lasts for how long? For about Until 12 o'clock,
0: quarter, ten past twelve. Then you come in out of the yard, you come back onto uh, bay wing, you return to your cell, collect your utensils, which would be, again, your tray, uh bowl, uh tray and bowl, that's about the gist of it, and a cup for milk. Uh, there's no tea the there. You go down, you collect your dinner, which you served off a hot plate, uh, hot press type of thing. Then in your bowl you will get some sort of a, a sweet. Uh, you get a cup of milk and, again, bread if you want it you return to your cell, you'll be locked up then. You'll eat your luncheon and you'll be locked up till two o'clock. Come around, they open you up at two. You go out and you get water to wash your utensils. You you know, you bring them back to your cell and wash them in your basin, you know. You have a tea towel if you're lucky. You'll dry your utensils and set them back out in military fashion. You leave your plate outside the door, whatever slop is left on it. That's collected, you know, you're not allowed to have a plate. Uh, and then you line up again, military fashion and you marched out into the small yard again. Uh, it's the same procedure, walking around the yard from roughly half two to four o'clock. Then you come back in out of the yard, the same military fashion, you know, you're not a little smoker and where you're marching in. It's just you're on parade. Uh return to your cell again, you collect your teapot, you side play. And you try, you come down, you, you'll uh, get your pot of tea, uh, bread, as much bread as you like, uh, whatever's on the menu for your tea, you know, whatever's on, it's usually the same thing, you know, fairly from day to day, but it's the same thing week in, week out. Uh, jam, if you want jam, there's a fair bit of jam there. And you get a half point of milk, you're back into yourself, locked in till... That's roughly half hour. You'd be locked in dental. I think it's around twenty to six. The release at twenty to six. Uh, you wash your utensils. You know, set your cell out in the same manner again. You come down onto B1, which is kind of a compound. You know, if you can visualise two lamins of cells. You know, about 20, 30 cells each side. That's the length of the compound. Uh, the television set there they had a what they call very small snooker not snooker, uh, yeah, snooker table, a very small snooker table decks of cards or walk up and down the compound uh, you'd be there till half seven you'd catch the news and maybe something like Sesame Street or some stupid children's thing like that you go back to your cell half seven collect your tray and your teapot your cup. You come down then at half seven, you get a pot of tea, a bun, something like what you used to get in school, everyone knows the old cutting bun sort of, and uh, a cup of milk, and then you're back to your cell, the door is locked. You've read, your light is left on until uh, 10 o'clock, you know, 10 o'clock, then it's lights out, you're there till, you know, 8 o'clock the next morning.
1: But the boredom of the daily routine is only one of the problems experienced by prisoners. They're also locked in for long stretches of time, and that generates an inevitable feeling of loneliness.
0: Well, if you take into consideration, you're something like it works out basically around eighteen hours per day. You're behind the door on your own. Well, anybody I think can visualize what it's like being, you know, eighteen hours on your own. Then you have what, eighteen, if six hours that you can mingle and sort of have a conversation during that time uh, what can you talk about in that six hours prison, prison, prison what someone heard on my visit, etc uh, what you're going to do when you get out what you did before you come in all that sort of thing you go back into your cell then at night particularly from, as I say half seven, eight o'clock-ish till eight o'clock the next morning and you're just lying there particularly after 10, when they put the lights out. Like, you haven't done anything all day to make it tired, so you're not sleeping, you know? It takes you hours to go to sleep. Uh, you're lying there, and it's all you're t- doing is thinking, thinking of your wife, you're thinking of the kids, you're thinking of the pub, you know, the point. Uh, dancing, sex, uh, just things that everybody does in their ordinary day life, rambling up town rambling out where you live and meeting the lads, playing darts, playing football. You know, everything, you know, things that you don't even get involved in, or, or that you have never, you know, sports or anything that you may never have been active in or interested in, you start telling yourself that when you get out, I'm going to do this, I'm going to go swimming. You now, there's a the thing, I used to love swimming. You no, know, I, I don't do it now, but I used to love swimming. And in that prison, they should have a swimming pill, they should have a gym, they should have something. Literally nothing, you know. Nothing.
1: Right. I take it one of the greatest problems was being missing sex, uh, for example. Would be oh, well,
0: uh, f- from as as myself, as a married man, yes, definitely. You know, but everybody, I think nowadays, you know, I think everybody plays their role in sex, both married and single. And uh, you get you get to the stage that you think about it that much that you start imagining you're having and you start abusing yourself. Uh, I don't think there's any prisoner that could annoy that they never indulged in it. I know the doctor up there, I don't know who he is now, but the, the last doctor used to recommend it once a week. He used to tell you, you know, we, we used to call it a calendar, so-and-so, so-and-so. But uh, it was recommended by the doctor to keep you together. You know, everybody must, you know what I mean? You, you just do, you know?
1: Do you also worry about uh, the fact that you've got a wife outside, uh, what she is doing, would that cross your mind? Uh? Is
0: that part of it? Well, not with me, but uh, I've known plenty of uh, inmates to crack up over it, particularly uh, if they've been told that a wife was messing about, hanging about, uh, sometimes right, sometimes wrong. Like, uh, some teams, as we call them, or friends, little cliques, that hang around on the outside, you know, and might do a bit of robbing together or whatever. One of their friends might be constantly going down and dropping a fiver or a tenner or something to his mate's ma, or something. just something to help her out. And rumour had leaked back into the prison that he was having an affair with her. Uh, stuff like that, it's, it's terrible. I've really seen men break over, you know. I've seen men, I've a great friend of mine now at the minute on the outside and he's having terrible domestic problems over the same time. And still to this day, nobody could know whether they're true or false, but it's said in, and he had 16 hours a day to play around with. So, I mean, as far as he's concerned, it's the truth. He's convinced himself during that period.
1: However, the worry about a wife or a family isn't the end of the story. Other simple, everyday things are missed by prisoners as well.
0: You're lying in yourself. This is where it all really comes to you, when you're isolated. You're lying on yourself and you allow your mind to ramble outside the prison walls and that, you know. And you, you might be thinking like uh crips, uh, just a r- r- rambling, remember the day I was rambling up Granton Street with Johnny and Mick and it. we rambled into King Burger or McDonald's or one of them places and we got a Boger and Chips. You know, you, you really miss them things, I mean, they mightn't sound like you could miss them, but you really miss them. Talk about the point. Uh, Game of snooker, you really missed that. Packet of crips, lemonade. Now these things like crips and lemonade and, you know, fizzy lemonade, large bottles of orange, cans of orange, whatever, there's nothing that's prevent them from selling them in the prison. You know, putting up a shop there, they have it in Port Leash, right? And they sell everything. You can buy anything from, Jesus, we say, a flea to a, an elephant, you know, that sort of way. You can, if you've seen the, the list they have in the shop there, clothes, type recorders, anything you want, Into Mountjoy, you have a few sweets, cigarettes, shampoo, and soap, and that's about the gist of it, right? Well, they should have lemonade, cakes, biscuits, you know, sweets, chocolate, uh, potato, peanuts. You know, they they should have even a suggestion box there from the prisoners as to what they should stock in the shop and what people miss, but they, they won't do it. Despite these problems, however, there's one apparent
1: relief from the monotony of life in the prison, and that's the visits from family or friends. On the surface, they appear to be a vital link to the world outside, but what's the view of the prisoner?
0: Visits, in my mind, would be one of the most depressing aspects of prison life. Myself, now I'm a married man of three young kids. The last time I've been in prison, uh, the wife came up to me, and she, the kids, were. Now, you sit across a very long table, maybe four, five feet in width. In the centre of that, there's a small plastic perspex partition going up maybe two feet. Uh, you sit on your seat, and you must keep your your bottom on the seat at all times. You're not allowed raise the bend over to perk a kiss or whatever. But the actual... Uh, sit there with a prisoner, maybe, each side of you and a family each side. Of you. you know, it's a very long table. Uh, everybody's getting their visits together. There's a prison officer at each end monitoring everything. Everybody is saying, sort of. Uh, he's there to make sure that you don't kiss your wife, you don't hold your kiddies, whatever. If you're a sentenced prisoner, you have a half an hour a week of a visit. That's all. If you're a remand prisoner, you're allowed 15 minutes per day. Uh, in in either case, you know what I mean, you're not allowed to speak about uh, prison conditions, you're not allowed to mention prison on your visit or your visit will be stopped. Now, if you take somebody for argument's like that's doing, after five, four, five five months in prison, what else can they talk about? So the, the only thing your your actual prison visit boils into is your relatives are your family coming up, to give you a scandal. That's basically how you can get what's going on on the outside.
1: Uh, you can, of course, uh, write to people outside, can't you? Uh, isn't
0: that uh, Well, writing, allowed? as I say, you're allowed to write. No, as I have here, for example, I'll show, show you here, is letters I receive and send to prison. And there they are on the back of every sheet is uh, censor forms, where every there's the official stamp, as you can see there yourself. Nice. Every letter is censored, dated and stamped. So therefore you could never write to anybody on the pretense that you weren't in prison. You could never write to anybody, say your girlfriend or your wife, etc., and put sentimental things in that the screws could re-slag you off. And that does exist. Like They read your letters and they know your weak points. I and mean, They want to get up on your back. They're going on about the dear John so-and-so, so-and-so, come Christmas, like, there's another perfect example, a card I got myself from a very close friend of mine. Yeah, censored as well. Censored and stamped. Now, I mean, mm-hmm. we all send X amount of cards at Christmas, whether you're in or outside, right? And you send them to people you haven't seen for years. You know, that that may be the only communication you have year in, year out, is a Christmas card. If you want to send a Christmas card to that type of a friend, uh, Just by opening the card or looking at the card, they know that you're in prison. And these might be relations or, you know, if your mother was abroad and you didn't want her to know or anything like that, she's going to know the minute you open the card. And then if you don't send her a card, she's worried. So, I mean, in my mind, that's trivial nonsense. You know what I mean? What's on a Christmas card? Dear Sansa, with best wishes for Christmas and the new year. Best wishes, Sansa, Sansa. I mean, why do they have to censor that? Even if they are censoring, it, why do they have to stamp it?
1: Now, there are other aspects of life in Mount Joy that cause frustration for prisoners as well, and one of them relates to the work done by inmates. Among the jobs available are the making of upholstery, mat-making or baking. So the question is, how does a prisoner react to that sort of work?
0: The boredom is still there. Like, they put you into a workshop, uh, say, a mat-shop, filthy old mat-shop, you know, these real old brown government mats. You'll see them everywhere in every government building you go to. You make them one of them. You know, you wouldn't, the size of some of them, you wouldn't make them in a the month of Sundays, you know. They're that big, you know, the prisoner come go, you know, and they take over. Bow them. There's nobody rushing you. You've no interest in the job because you can never see it being completed. Uh, s- dust dirty old dust flowing around or you could be rolling up the twine they use it. it's a type of brown twine they use for plaiting them sort of and cutting them, big scissors uh, you do that say from the you know ten to twelve two to four uh, you could be out in the woodyard the woodyard is chopping logs pulling saws you know you'd be out there in all elements you know hail uh, rain or snow sun whatever you get no extra clothing and you're not allowed remove any clothing, you know. So the the same goes winter and summer. You can even in the height of the sun, you must keep your jacket on. You must keep pulling the saw. So do you feel that the work actually does nothing for you in It Does nothing. I mean, where are you going to get a job making mats when you come out? Where but are there are
1: other jobs, surely aren't there? I mean, in terms of woodwork, or uh,
0: well, they have of lay, They have. D wing, D wing was always there, but of lately they have modernised D wing, and they have like uh, making sofas, you know, upholstery, carpentry shops, uh, a leather shop, uh, stuff like that. But in terms of the number of prisoners that would actually be employed in them shops, would be something like five to eight percent of the total prison population. So your chances of getting the job in one of them places are virtually nil you know, and uh, then the same thing actually boils down i mean the trade unions are nothing like that actually recognize uh, the training that you have received in prison and you're still the same you the employers won't employ
1: but quite apart from work, there's still the question of how prisoners get on with each other. After all, they're forced to live together for months, maybe years, at a stretch. So we could ask what sort of relationships exist between the different categories of inmates.
0: Well, they vary, you know. If you're dealing with sex offenders, as we call them, right, uh, you know, they're usually sent to the base, and they'll do a time in segregation security down there. They'll be kept isolated and. The, and after a good period of their sentence, they will be shifted to another prison. Now, uh, that other prison, I, I really don't want to mention it because there's other people get sentenced to that prison and get transferred to that prison who are not sex offenders. But I feel if I mention the name of the prison and tie it in with sex offenders, there'll be a stigma attached to anybody that done a stench or done a stell in, pri- in that particular prison.
1: You're probably talking about Arbor Hill, are you?
0: Uh, Well, uh, well, the client, like, you know, as to what prison I'm talking about. But what I'm trying to say is, although a a high percentage of the prisoners that are sent to this particular prison may be sex offenders, there are uh, ordinary Joe Soaps who who are very nice people. In my mind, they mightn't be in the mind of the public because they committed a crime, but they paid our debt to the society. And they are now branded when people hear that they were in this particular prison they become branded as sex offenders and th- the people had nothing to do with it which is the, f- the fault of the department you know what i mean but how do other
1: prisoners uh, treat them
0: and joy when they're when they're there they would attack them basically they would attack them if if they got to the grips with them i mean it's very hard uh for uh, any man that has sisters mother or children you know to, uh, stand in line with a sex offender, you know, depending on the category of his crime, but it's common knowledge, I'd say, all around that sex offenders will be attacked, you know. But yeah. is it
1: the case that uh, other prisoners could be a source of pride, for example, if you're talking about um, armed robbers or something like that?
0: Well, I'd say so, yeah. yeah. They they could be the the crime of the prison in, in terms, you know, the... Uh, it's just that stigma again, you know what I mean? I suppose it boils down in, in a lot of places, you know. It depends on where you are. I uh, can't really explain I can't find a word for it. Uh,
1: Social pride uh, associated with that sort of robbery, you know?
0: You might find that they have a terrible lot of respect from the the environment that they're in whilst in prison, you know. There's a terrible lot of people that would like to have decided guts to come in an armed robbery, but don't, right? And mm. th- we're in the criminal sort of environment and I suppose they'd have a certain amount of respect, more respect for for them. Yeah. For them. What about drugs? Well nobody really looks upon drugs as a crime. When you go into Mount Joy and you, you see drug abusers, junkies, even those that have been convicted for peddling drugs, you basically know them and you know that at the back of it all they're not really drug pushers that they got hooped and mainline heroin, and that was the only way. Because I mean, they could have been good, say, even robbers before they got caught up on drugs. And when they got caught, caught up on drugs, their whole, what we call the bottle, you know, their guts, goes, you know, and then they might resort to pushing gear for uh, the fear of habit, you know. Uh, you'd feel sorry. In a lot of ways, if you see someone coming into prison and going through a stench of cold talkie, and that, you feel really sorry for them, you No, know, I'd say at the minute the junkies in our prison system would be the weakest spirited uh, inmates in the whole, you know, prison population. The wrecked, run down, wrecked people. And no use. Uh, being They're no use to, you know, nobody. Mm. You, you just really pity them. You know, you can't help but pity them. They what shouldn't about, be what there. What they, about, for
1: example, country versus city? Uh, is that um, a sort of a big difference in terms of the way that you're treated uh, in Mountjoy?
0: Not really, no. Uh, in the Boston, say, you know, if you go back you know, to younger days in the Boston, there was always a stigma of country versus city and sort of little gang rivalry because that's the way juveniles are. But in the adult prison Mountjoy and the, uh, doesn't exist really, you know. You might have, like uh, right, most prison officers are from the country, uh, most r- rural parts of the country, and if you have an odd inmate that comes in from the same town and that, well he might be favourable to, you know, throw him an extra smoke or, you know, try and get him a cushy number, that sort of thing. That will be the only variation there. No? Do you think that overall uh, prisoners get on fairly well together uh, in prison? I'd say so, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, Judging from sort of mixing in a criminal circle on the outside, that's, there's a lot more rows amongst criminals on the outside than you would see in prison. You know?
1: Now, one special type of inmate was mentioned there, namely drug addicts, and the fact is that drug offenders are appearing more and more in our prisons. So what do they face if they're sentenced to Mountjoy?
0: Well, a, d- a drug addict coming from the court's uh, the fairies, like you know, some drug addicts would have been the night in custody in the Bridewell. Right? Uh, these could be people that's banging up something to the tune of a hundred pound a day. They're night alone in the Bridewell. They're uh, what we call it for arguments' sake. Like their medication has wore off them. They're going through a phrase of cold turkey. Uh, they're really sick people before they even appear before the judge don't know how to conduct their case, whatever. Then they shift off to Mount Joy, or that's where the judge sends them. They spend the remainder of the day until half hour that evening in the Bridewell. Then they shift up to Mount Joy. By the time they get to Mount Joy, the doctor is gone, so they can't get any medication. So they're in the cell right through till the next morning, go and see the doctor the next morning, maybe 12 o'clock. He orders medication for them and they'll get it that evening. So that's three days, say, two and a half, three days, without medication, and any doctor or junkie will tell you what that actually means. That's where they're really broke. can't be food. They're tearing the hair out of themselves, biting their nails, banging their head off the wall, tearing their mattress. You name it, they'll do it. They're really the most unfortunate victims
1: Yet you have uh, a doctor in there to look after those people, do you not?
0: You have a doctor that arrives daily, you know, the morning time. Uh, he will listen to them, uh, will hear their request for phoeseptone or some other thing, it's a substitute for heroin. He will give them so many mills of it, uh, that's milligrams, you know, you know, hear them talking about it. They will get it that evening. But then again, he's a GP. You know, uh, I think, myself, they should have someone from Jervis Street, maybe, the drug centre or the, you know of the Republic, should be there. You know, because we have now, we have a vast majority of drug abusers coming through the prison system daily. And I think it's high time the department booked up and got a professional from Jervis Street, you know, or kill mines there to deal with the problem that's coming in.
1: But such rather critical comments aren't reserved only for the medical staff. Of greater interest are the warders who have daily contact with prisoners and virtually govern their lives. So how does he view the warders?
0: I would say I hate them. I despise them. I've met maybe one, two, three maybe nice ones. That's about my limit. And then you must take into consideration there are actually more prison warders in Ireland than there is prisoners and uh, I have never found that they do you favours. They will never, if, if you're the sort of person that has a bit of pride about yourself and wouldn't bum off them or wouldn't lick up to them, yes or no, sir, so basis, they would do literally nothing for you. But if you're the sort of a, a prisoner that would say, yeah, uh, Mr. Samson, throw your shoes in there and I'll polish them while there's nobody looking and all that sort of thing, well, then they'll go out with their wife for you, so... Suppose it it depends, it's your own attitude. Uh towards prison and towards prison officers as to how you get on, you know.
1: What do you mean by that? I mean if you're nice to them that uh you If you want to be
0: that. a lick, you know, you can get on. Or if you wanna just the way I say, I would like to just do me time and you know, I don't like bumming off anybody, particularly them, you know. But mm. uh it's hard to explain to someone that hasn't seen it. But uh they don't leave you alone. They don't like the idea that you don't uh, go near them for anything, or that you're not bound down to them. And they try to get at you. And if you deal with the prison rules and regulations, they can get you for anything. Like, how many times have you walked along the street, unknown to yourself, you're whistling? Mm-hmm. You do that in Mount and you'd be a report, speaking too loud. Uh, disobeying an order. Now an order can be anything, you know. Uh, anybody that was in the army uh, would know, you know. Order, I uh, order you to do this. I or order you to do that. Now myself, if, if I go into prison, uh, and I go into myself after, you know, the various lock-up periods, I won't lock me door. You know, they'll roar at you, lock that door, right? As far as I'm concerned, they're the screws, They're getting paid for locking me up. No, I won't lock the door. If they want it, they can put you on report for that. And often have done.
1: But the warders' power is wider than that. They also conduct searches of cells, for example, and the prisoners complain about the procedures adopted when a search is being carried out.
0: You may have spent a couple of days with little matchsticks now. Anybody look at the size of a matchstick. You get a photograph and you make a frame from matchsticks and you varnish it and you do it nicely. They come along and they're searching your cell and for security reasons they tear the matches asunder. To save the ant and hid behind it, I mean there's there's a lot of trivial nonsense like, on the way they scrutinise the visits, and your mail, etc. It's virtually impossible to smuggle ant into prison, and yet they come around. And when they come around to searching yourself, they don't only search yourself. You have to strip naked, you know, strip, you know, completely naked, right? And turn around and lift up the soles of your feet, and pull your hair back and let them look in your ears you know it's 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 the most degrading aspect of, of life is for for males to be searching other males you know and it, it doesn't matter what people say or think we in prison there's a terrible lot of sort of homosexual relationships and prison officers are accused of it the same as inmates are and if you have a prison officer who's branded whether he is or he isn't if he's branded by the inmates this is queer and he's coming in and searching you, I mean, it's... You think about it. Yeah, you know. And you don't know whether he's stripping you for uh, his own personal pleasure or whether he's doing a job or whether he's getting his kicks out of doing a job. Now, not the man mightn't be homosexual he mightn't be gay, but rumours, everybody knows someone that they might suspect of being gay, and they're probably not, but in prison, rumours and rumours and rumours.
1: But that's probably more than rumours. Does it happen? I mean, oh, it no does percent. happen. I
0: mean, I, I mean, there's no disputing that it happens. You know, but uh, it gets over exaggerated. Like, I mean, everything in prison is over exaggerated uh, because you put a group of men, women, or anybody together and a bored like that. I mean, they make gossip. Whether it be true or false, they make it. You know, something to talk about. Something new. everybody needs it. You know, needs something to talk about.
1: Something to talk about, a product of the boredom of prison. And for inmates of Mountjoy, there's just one target in mind, namely the date of release. It's a thought that keeps most prisoners going and it can become an obsession for those behind bars.
0: Some cells I've been in, and you see whole calendars, ancient type of calendars, you know, where you scrape one, 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 into seven days on the wall. And you see someone has been scraping off the whole time. I, I personally have an in it. I would... Uh, more or less counted up in my head, you know, everybody does, uh, a lot of times when you're walking into your cell, although you know what date is actually on your card for your release, you still look at it, you know, and you're hoping that you <laughs> it's at a change, you know, you looked at it wrong or something, you basically know the day you're getting out, but you, I think everybody hopes for it, an earlier release, parole, something like that, you know? and as I said it, there is quite a number of people that actually chalk it off on the wall or on the back of a book. You know, you, you find all these sort of, uh, what do you call them, Roman calendars. <laughs> you find them all over the prison. What about escaping?
1: Do you ever feel like?
0: Um, I think everybody does. Everybody does. You know, particularly anyone doing a large sense. You, you could think about it, and you could even, in your own mind, discover a way out, yeah, but. Basically nobody bothers trying. To. I mean, what escapes have we had from Irish prisons? We had an attempt recently. One got out and one failed. You know, I'd say myself not even knowing the chap, but say he's sorry now that he, you know, he had it away. You know, you have a date there. That's, you know, you look forward when you know through attempt to escape. Although everybody thinks about it, you'll only ruin yourself. Like you know. Finally,
1: however, comes that long awaited day of release. It never comes soon enough, but when it happens, how does a prisoner feel?
0: It's marvellous. You couldn't explain the feeling, you know. And I know it means nothing, and it's a trivial thing. It means nothing how the air inside the wall could be different, you know. But still, when you get out, I don't know whether it's from looking at films or whatever, you still tend to take a deep breath and say, This is free air, and there's something different with the air inside. It's the same, Mirabou, you know, it's just something that sticks in your
1: head. It would, of course, be nice to say that being released is the end of the story. Unfortunately, however, for most prisoners, the problems are only beginning. For our interviewee, the reality has brought unemployment and almost no hope of a job. He's got no skills, little education, no training, and the future looks bleak. With that as a background, there's just one final question namely, does it all mean that he'll end up back again? In Mount Joy?
0: I would say, to be honest about it, I would say yes, I, I will see Mount Joy again. Uh, I have a trial coming up at the minute, it's an assault charge. Whether I go back or not on that is another day's work, well. but definitely I think I would see Mount Joy again, one way or the other. You know? Hopefully not, but I mean, you, you've got to be truthful. If you play with four, you expect to get one.